0: and
1: now we go into the top three and wait a minute you didn't see this movie either (laughs) at least not yet which is uh drive my car um and uh this is a uh, the one, uh, fully, uh, foreign, uh, title of the bunch. And, uh, the director is Risuke Hamaguchi. I hope I didn't mispronounce that. I probably didn't. Um, and this is a really, it's a pleasant, uh, surprise to see this actually in the, in the, well, not just that it got the nominations it did, but just, uh, you know the certain categories because i i expected like international film you know and that because you know, it has it's that's an easy choice it's the it was japan's entry for the foreign film oscar mm-hmm. and so it got that nomination i i anticipate that would probably be the winner even though there is one other film that we'll talk about like la- a little later on in this episode that comes really close to being like almost better, but drive my car is, you know, it's a tough sell. I think for a lot of the public, even though again, best picture, best director, best adapted screenplay. Those are big, you know, those are some juicy nominations. Um, but it's, it's a film that when you hear the premise, I mean, I'll just read it right off of uh Letterboxd to make it simple, even though the film is not simple at all. Risuke Rus- Kafuku, a stage actor and director, still unable after two years to cope with the loss of his beloved wife, accepts to direct Uncle Vanya at a theater festival in Hiroshima. There he meets Misaki, an introverted young woman appointed to drive his car. In between rides, secrets from the past and heartfelt confessions will be unveiled.
2: <laughs> I look forward to watching this. Like, I'm never going to watch Don't Look Up. I'm never going to watch King Richard. This, I am going to watch. It comes to HBO Max on March 2nd.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, It's fun. I don't know if you saw that I put that... I shared that there was a meme someone did with, uh, you know, the the picture where the guy is looking at, like, the one woman in the foreground and the other girlfriend next to him is like, hey! You know, and in this one, it's like the... The, the one girl in the foreground is Turner Classic Movies. The guy is Drive My Car and HBO Max next to him's like, hey! <laughs> <laughs> which I, I totally get. I mean, the thing about this film is that it's... The, the opening credits of the film don't come in until like 35, 40 minutes into the movie, which is quite a bold choice, and... I could but I can understand it actually because well for one thing in the in the scope of the film that whole first like 35 40 minutes is almost like its own long short film and then you have but then the rest of the film is its own film but they're connected together and that's why even as long as the film is it feels so complete because you need to really follow the trajectory of um of this man's story uh specifically again um i just said his name uh you know the 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 character of rasuke played by uh hidatoshi nishijima um you know he you know he, he goes through a lot in the first part of the movie where he um also he thinks he might be sick at one point uh but really it's about him and his wife and There's something, he knows that something's off with his wife and he can't describe it. There might be some infidelity. And there's actually a very hot kind of sex scene between the two of them too. Where she almost like recites like lines from the play that she's going to be doing like to him as they're having sex. (laughs) A little pre-spoiler for those who haven't seen it yet. But as I described in the plot, like her, his wife's death is what's the kind of cutoff point, point. and then it moves ahead in time when he gets this gig to uh, to direct this play, um, and I f- almost forgot how much I love films like this where you're just you're allowed to take a lot of time to hear characters talk and have very rich <laughs> conversations where, you know, these people, you know, it it reminds me a lot, even though it's the obvious connection, of course, is to Chekhov because of Vanya. But I, of course, go with my boy Bergman, (laughs) Ingmar Bergman. And he was also so in tune with creating very rich, believable characters who have this intelligence about how they want to express themselves intellectually but can be extremely closed off emotionally, or lack some way of connecting to other people, and that I think is a lot of what drive my car is kind of dealing with and trying to, you know, with this character, uh, in particular too. You know, he has, as I mentioned in that premise, the 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 theater company basically forces this young girl, this young woman, to be his driver. Uh, even though he doesn't want it she's very again introverted but the longer they're together it's you f- it's it, it unfolds in a way that's satisfying because it's like how in life you sometimes have trouble if you don't really feel like talking to someone but then eventually when you get to know them you understand like oh this is like what this person's been going through uh You know, and it's, you know, because the her the her character, the driver also has like a really hard backstory and, you know, things that made her extremely closed off and he's closed off, too. And then there's another actor in the play who I don't want to say too much about him, but he has kind of a past with his uh, the the director's late wife Um, to say no more. Uh, I, again but that's not quite how it sounds and it, it's funny cuz that actor th- that character his his role in the movie is really fascinating cuz he's almost like this uh almost semi-celebrity type who is in the play but he has like paparazzi kind of follow him sometimes and you know he has almost this bad boy image but he's trying to you know get by it and do this play he has like a monologue with the director character at one point and you're just like, oh man oh this is definitely like yeah this is going up to the top three of the year because <laughs> it just hit me like oh I love hearing characters just talking this long and expressing like everything about you know their lives but also what act oh, but it's also about acting too and I love films that can explore. What it means to play another person or embody another person, or what that does to us, and uh, and yeah, the film does like an incredible job just exploring all this. I hope I didn't ramble a little bit in my explanation. It was
2: good. No, I'm looking forward to watching it because I like talky movies, as you know. Give me Mm -hmm. like good meaty dialogue chunks, and I'm very happy.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah, and I I feel bad that again. I know the length seemed yeah. I'm a little daunted by the
2: length. But. which is
1: funny though because you you know you love Bergman I do but I get but on the other hand a lot of the Bergman you've watched at home with me yes so yeah so that's you know the the it, again i I know it's not an easy sell for some people like a three hour Japanese movie but when you're dealing with something that is like a gourmet dish you know you're gonna go for it you know if you are again into film uh i mean it's it's a fascinating thing also because among the films listed like you know we again i mentioned that uh you know a number of a couple of films are netflix movies you have films from disney the one apple film warner brothers this was released by janus films which or janus films i might be mispronouncing that for those who don't know janus films is basically like the uh you know, like if you know for you know like for Criterion Collection is Elton John, Janus Films is like Bernie Toppin, <laughs> or uh, or or you know, or if or if Criterion is Bruce Springsteen, uh, Janus Films is Little Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> they're like always there, and they're always kind of giving like you know the backup that Criterion needs, and you know they they have put out films before, but I think this is like the first time. I can remember in a very long while that they've put out something that, you know, not only has gotten such critical attention, it's one best picture, I think from the, I forget if it was national society of film critics or national border review, but it's, it's gotten attention from that. Um, And this director, I really didn't know much about him beforehand. He's, you know, sometimes there are these directors in Japan or South Korea that I, I almost feel a little guilty that I haven't seen more of their work. Um, you know, uh, Hong Sang-soon, I'm looking at you. <laughs> uh, and it, it's, what's interesting, though, is he's made some other f- features. Not a lot, but he's made some. Oh, my God. He made... Well, this has to be a series. He made something called Happy Hour. It's listed as being 317 minutes. <laughs> that's That's got to be a series. That can't be a film. Yeah, my guess. I hope. But he also made another film this that came out this year called... Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, Uh that one's, well, just two hours. That's more of a, like, anthology-type thing. It's like three episodes. And I think that's a, a thing that's great about this director. He's clearly really interested in how a story is shaped, and the structure of Drive My Car is really compelling. But I also just love how, again, his script is... You know, you don't have too many films like this, even in art houses, that just let characters talk. And, you know, you could say, well, sometimes that's not natural. But, again, this is also dealing with the world of theater. And that's another thing like Bergman was known for, too, is like his theatrical, you know, types of uh, expressions. So, that's Drive My Car. am <laughs> I can't wait for you to see it.
2: All right, top two, baby. Number two.
1: Yeah, here we get into uh, you know, couple of, you know really ragtag, uh, you know scrappy little directors named Paul Thomas Anderson, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> uh, that joke never gets old. Um, yeah, so my number two and number one, which are very close together, Licorice Pizza and West Side Story. Um,
2: licor- we shouldn't talk about them both extensively cuz spoiler alert these are on our top 10 of the year list too.
1: That's a good idea. You know what? We'll leave that for our next part of the discussion where we'll talk about the yeah, our our top films of the year. That's a, that's a great point. Um but yeah, so that's our ranking of the uh the best picture nominees or really more so my ranking <laughs> with a little bit of extra commentary from you know, the Trash Panda. <laughs> um so, now let's talk about our top 10 of the year lists. Um, and I don't know if maybe uh, we should then kind of go back and forth with, like, yeah. our number 10s and then number 9s and maybe yeah. go that way.
2: Yeah, let's do that. All right. I want to start with number 10 because my number 10 will be very easy to dispatch. Um, this was very tight for me. I almost put the movie Parallel Mothers as my number 10. Yeah. I think that movie's mostly incredible, but I feel like it rushes the ending a little bit.
1: Yeah, the Parallel Mothers is a very good movie. Um, That's the new uh, Pedro Almodovar movie. uh, That uh, he apparently has been trying to make this movie for a long time too. Mm. I don't know if in like a movie he made like ten or twelve years ago. It was I think called Broken Embraces. You can actually in one part there is a poster. Four Parallel Mothers. Nice. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a very uh, captivating movie uh, and a so. uh, very harrowing story of uh, Penelope Cruz and this uh, other young woman. And, you know, they both have kids. And, you know, the, the babies are, you know, become like kind of focal points in this very kind of twisty, melodramatic story.
2: So it's great. I really liked it. It's like my number 10.5. <laughs> Yeah. But I couldn't quite get it on there. So my number 10 of the year is Belfast, which okay. we just talked about. So we don't have to talk about it anymore. So get to your number 10. No.
1: Well, you could say then, you know, uh, well, you could say then in that case that the that Parallel Mothers is like your honorable mention. I yes. mean, I have a bunch of honorable mentions. I'll wait maybe till maybe the towards the end of the podcast to mention those. But yeah, my number 10 was uh, the souvenir part two. Um, this is a, uh, there was actually a souvenir. It wasn't called part one. Then it was just called the souvenir. Um, these films are from a, a British director, Joanna Hogg. And they're also, they're very, uh, I think, well, they're autobiographical to an extent. I have to wonder if some things were maybe created for the fiction, you know, the narrative of the movie or how much of it, but like in the first movie, she, which I like, and I think I like part two more Um, somehow. Like, in the first movie, she, basically in these, both these movies, you're it's the story of this young woman uh, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, I want to say is her name, or Honoré, I don't know how you pronounce that. Basically, Tilda Swinton's daughter. And Tilda Swinton also plays her mother in the films. Excellent. And Joanna Hogg, actually, the very first film that she made... Uh, in like film school had Tilda Swinton in it, which is also extra cool. Um, It's basically like charting how this young woman's trying to get through film school. Um, But she also has this uh, very fraught relationship with this guy in the first movie, who's a bit older and kind of is a little bit maybe abusive and maybe not physically, but more of a mental way. Very kind of keeping her at a distance and spoiler alert. For those, If you don't want to listen to this part, skip ahead a couple minutes. At the end of Souvenir 1, he uh, dies. And I can't remember exactly how he died. I Drug think...
2: overdose, right?
1: Thank you. Oh, fuck. I, I, I was worried I wouldn't remember it. And I'm glad you said that, even though you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> i read about it. <laughs> yeah. And so what happens, though, in part two, it cuts ahead a little bit in time. You know, he, he, the, her boyfriend is still, you know, the the death has kind of traumatized her in a way that she can't quite, you know, fully put into words. And, you know, she's now in the part of her time in film school where she has to create her kind of final, kind of graduate level, you know, film. And she's having trouble really putting it together, even though she gets a crew and she gets actors. It's not like the other filmmakers who are around her are making more kind of bigger idea movies uh, you know she but she, she's eventually what what's great in the film is you see what she's presented to us and it's like whoa it's like a, somebody compared it to Mulholland Drive almost and I could kind of see the point where like real what's reality and what's fiction kind of get kind of mixed up a bit. It's just, I love the look and direction of this film. I love the performance from Honor Swint Burn. I It feels like it's, even though it's called The Souvenir Part 2, it's almost feels like these are really like one long movie, but I'm glad it's in two. Because um, you get to really take time to have, even though it I probably could have used a recap maybe at the beginning of this movie, <laughs> of what happened in the first one, like in the TV show but you really just it's a it's a very unique kind of story um that and yet it deals with a lot of themes that a lot of people can deal with even though you know most people aren't filmmakers or going to film school you know people have dealt with loved ones who die very suddenly and you know having mixed emotions about maybe the person who died and uh, how do you process things and create art? Um, in that way, I feel like it could be a good companion piece with Drive My Car, as far as uh someone dealing with grief and you know this kind of loss of a part of you and uh, and yeah, so Souvenir Part Two, good movie, excellent or awesome movie. Excuse me, that's why it's my list number nine.
2: West Side Story.
1: Okay, so do we talk about this now or wait till later? Because I'll just say it now. West Side Story, my is my number one film of the year.
2: It's your number one, it's my number nine. We're both really big fans of this movie. Let's save it to the end. It's your number one, so yeah, save it to the end.
1: Yeah, my number nine was uh, Spencer.
2: Spencer is my number seven.
1: Okay, so let's let's talk about a little bit about Spencer here. Um, this uh, interesting movie with the Oscars where. You know we see you know Kirsten Stewart, is it Kristen or Kirsten?
2: Kristen. Fuck yeah.
1: These Kristen Kirsten people get like a real name. No, <laughs> like Spencer. Uh, no, uh, uh, Kristen Stewart. She uh, got, I believe, the one nomination from this film. Although Johnny Greenwood did the score, he's nominated for a different film. Um, but I, I was really taken in with uh, this um you know depiction of uh you know princess diana but also as a uh you know telling the a story of someone in this kind of way um again for those who don't know spencer if it, it follows uh you know princess diana in this uh you know very uh emotionally fraught time in her life uh you know, over one weekend uh, in the, around Christmas, you know, must it has to be like in the late '80s? Uh, I forget exactly what year, but it's right when. Now, has she divorced Prince Charles, or is it right before that?
2: No, Did... they're still together. I but the, you know the but problem, it's right
1: on the precipice.
2: The problem is Prince Charles is barely in the movie, and you were in the bathroom during the big <laughs> scene I, with her.
1: Since then, I have seen a little more of their scene together. I've actually seen a clip that shows most of that scene.
0: Yesterday, you arrived after the Queen. I got lost. Why oh, how could you get lost? You've lived over the hill for years.
3: It looks different now. Everything looks different.
0: You sure you went late yesterday because you were delayed by someone?
3: Why would you think I got delayed by someone?
0: Oh, come on, come on. They are circling us, didn't you know? Don't you read?
3: It seems they're circling just me. Not you, just me.
0: The thing is, Diana, there has to be two of you. You know, there's, there's two of me, there's two of Father, two of everyone. There's the real one, and the one they take pictures of. You have to be able to make your body do things you hate. That you hate. Yes. For the good of the country.
2: For the country. But they're not divorced, but the marriage is obviously dead.
1: And yeah, well, even not having seen that scene at the time, you can tell watching everyone else in the film that, yeah, the marriage is... Not only on the way out but the way but the family the the royal family is not taking it well.
2: this is i would say almost like a straightforward psychological horror movie with like the Christmas estate is a full on haunted house,
1: yeah, that's a great yeah absolutely this is like you know it's it's a gothic horror movie that happens to also be about you know, one of the most famous people the past 50 years.
2: There's, there's also individual scenes that have body horror elements because Princess Diana, if those who don't know, she had an eating disorder. She was powerfully self-loathing and there are these scenes of, you know, like binging and purging. And there's also a fantastic scene where she imagines that she's eating the pearls yes. of her necklace and the way they crunch. So there's these, because there's the elements of body horror because she's so profoundly uncomfortable in her environment that she, she hurts herself. She engages in self-harm as a way the, to...
1: Yeah, there's a scene where she comes to eat dinner. Um, she also, like... And it's, like, the day before Christmas or the Christmas whatever. It's, like, when she first comes to this, uh, the castle where the royal family is. And she goes down to sit at dinner. And how that unfolds, as you said, like, with this food. Like, Roman Polanski, like, couldn't, like, make this even as horrific as it is. It's almost, like, that level of, like, dread and, like, just gut-wrenching, like, Urgh kind of like terror.
2: Yeah, you feel her constantly shredded nerves. Hostile environment, hostile family members. It's excellent.
1: Yeah, and like was Timothy Spall in the movie? Yes. Yeah, and he's like really good as like the one the the character in the film that's almost kind of there to communicate what she has to do. Because no one else, except for Prince Charles in the one scene, will talk to her. And yeah, and Kristen Stewart's amazing in the film.
2: What's interesting, too, is the staff members at this estate, obviously, in some ways, they have to be very deferential to Princess Diana. Obviously, she's above them. Hierarchically, in a lot of ways. She's their superior, but they also kind of like cut at her in ways. And there are these passive aggressive dynamics between them, between her and the staff that are really fascinating. And, And,
1: and even though it, what's great about it is it does something that a lot of biopics and movies about, you know, real life figures could take a lesson from because it takes place over three days, but you understand what's been going on for years and what must have been the atmosphere in that place for a long time. Uh, And, you know, of course, now it's come to a very dramatic point, but it, you know, I, I love when films can do that, and they're not, you know, again, like King Richard, take note, where you don't have to take a long stretch of time over the story of the film. By making it compact, you just get, you know, the the sliver of it really you understand completely, and it also helped too that you know you know we both listened to you're wrong about and they did a series about uh you know the princess diana and charles, and so having I think a little bit of that background in my head I think helped me a little watching the film because it seemed like it was very accurate to how they described uh how princess diana you know, functioned or didn't really have a function in the family, even though, you know, she was in the family and had, yeah, as you said, like this high hierarchical high place, the, how the world works in it. It's, it was incredibly oppressive.
2: Yeah. The, it's obvious that the British Royal family for all their material abundance, for all their privilege, It's a psychologically destructive institution. Don't
1: don't let the adorable corgis fool you. (laughs) They have some, uh, they have some adorable dogs, but that's, (laughs) it's all a lie. It's it's a (laughs) lie of corgis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, brilliant film. And I, I feel like this would, did you, did this get overlooked by the Academy?
2: Yes, it totally got over. I think
1: so. This, like,
2: well, it's my number seven of the year, so I obviously thought it deserved a spot within the Best Picture year. Yeah, me of too.
1: Yeah. Like, if I had my way, yeah, this would be one of the ten nominees. Like, this would take the place of, like, King Richard. And I have to wonder if maybe the film was, it's so good, and it's so effective at showing this oppressive environment. Maybe that threw off some Academy voters. Like, I don't know. Maybe
2: they thought it was almost difficult to watch because of how well, and it dramatizes the claustrophobia and abuse.
1: Yeah. And it gets to the point where like it there, there it's, it's there are a couple of moments where you, where you not a couple, there are actually a few moments where I laughed. Yeah. Where I think like they know that this is like so intense. It's, it would be almost funny. Like, you know, and the director, Pablo Lorraine, he also did uh, the movie Jackie uh, with Natalie Portman. And this feels like a good companion piece to that. The only difference, I think, is that, you know, for the most part in Jackie, you know, you're seeing the ca- this character kind of deal with, you know, how empty this, wor- you know, and whatever this world was after her, you know, her husband is killed. Whereas, you know, in this, it's like, if only my husband could die. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, I feel like the reason why you get those moments of dark humor is because we realize that this situation is ultimately ludicrous. The fact that the British royal family even still exists is yes. really ludicrous. It's ridiculous. Or or at and-
1: least, or exists like this with all these like protocols.
2: And the fact that so much pomp and circumstance is lavished upon these empty people performing empty rituals, the combination of extreme seriousness and extreme shallowness would be enough to drive everyone crazy. It's an, It's a wretched yeah. institution.
1: yeah, yeah, it's wretched. And uh, it might be because he just done the favorite, but I wonder if this was offered to uh, Yorgos Lanthimos.
2: I did get some some of the favorite vibes occasionally because the favorite also taps into how really stupid a lot of this stuff is. Yeah, how much the cruelty of the royal family is based on deeply stupid things so you yes, your exactly. number 9 my yeah. number 7 yeah I
1: just it felt like it that movie deserved a few more words so that's why I wanted to talk a little more about it yeah so your number well so we're at number 8 now
2: yes alright my number 8 Shiva Baby Danielle don't Danielle
0: please don't more
3: is here and our daughter Stephanie Jessica whatever you
0: should really talk
3: to her you know no it's just a job Hi. Hi. Hi, Mom. Yeah. I'm so sorry for your loss no funny business with Maya.
0: Thank you. You think everyone that's by is experimenting? You have zero gaydar. Excuse
2: me, kid. I lived through New York in the 80s. My gaydar is strong as a bull. You can't just like show up to like the after party for a Shiva
3: and like reap the benefits of the buffet. Yeah. She lost so much weight. Yeah. You think she has an eating disorder? That was true, Major, again. Sweetheart, feminism isn't exactly what I call a
1: career. It's not know? my career, it's a lens. <laughs> Shiva Baby, yeah, that's one of my honorable mentions. It didn't quite make my list, although, you know, probably tomorrow I might wake up and say, like, hey, that's really my number, whatever. Um, Shiva Baby was a really fantastic, in a way, almost like, well, not quite the same style, but now I'm thinking Spencer and Shiva Baby. Yes. Kind of good partner-cousin movies.
2: Yeah, because...
1: You You know, one is, you know... One is like the crumpety British one. The other one is, well, the bagel. (laughs) (laughs) I I say that because if you buy uh, the Blu-ray of the film, you can buy it in like a bagel uh, shape, which is pretty awesome.
2: Yeah. So basically, like Spencer, Shiva Baby, covers an even more compressed time period. You're basically watching a Shiva visit unfold in real time. Yeah. That's most of the movie. Like the movie doesn't start there. We have one setup scene before we get there. Mm-hmm. But most of the scene is the most socially excruciating Shiva call in the history of man.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's what you should know going into it. Uh it's uh ex- it's it's you feel like your back could break from the amount of cringe that you have watching the events unfold here Uh for this poor, for this young woman who's at a place she really does not want to be. And, you know, especially around certain people that she's just not wanting to be around. Um it, It's also very impressive because this is a direct debut for um, Emma Seligman. And, I'll talk about and also the the elite actress who's this uh, young woman Rachel Sennett, is uh, fantastic in the film. She does a great job communicating all of this like unease and you know just you almost you can't you're wondering when is she going to fucking explode? I want to see her explode, you know, at some point. But what helps is seventy eight minute runtime,
2: and you get everything you need. This movie is so tense, you could watch something like Uncut Gems to relax <laughs>
0: after you watch it.
1: Well, maybe not quite. It it, it does have that safty uh level of like anxiety. Um I don't think it got quite got to the Uncut Gems level of anxiety inducement, but it's up there. So brilliant, yeah, brilliant dark comedy. I can't wait to see what she does next. Um my number 8 was uh, the last duel.
2: This is higher on my list.
1: Yeah. I I wanted to put it higher. I think it's just the, the when when we get into the next, you know, several films, like these are all just such bangers that I it, it kind of speaks more to the strength of I think the other movies maybe than just this one. But last duel was uh a, a total like return to form for Ridley Scott. I felt. And maybe even like, frankly, like this is maybe among, if not one of the, if not the best of his kind of period set uh, films, Um, you know, again, in this, for those who maybe didn't, if they, you missed it on in theaters, it's now on HBO max. Uh, This is a story that kind of goes in Rashomon style, like three versions of, the events told from these characters who like what Matt Damon is this, uh, kind of low level knight who's trying to, you know, get this land and has all these other issues. He's married to the lady Marguerite, uh, you know, played by Jody Comer. He's has a kind of, you know, friendly friend, frenemy bond with this, uh, character played by Adam driver. And, uh, there, the, the wife claim says that she was raped. And you see not the rape three times. You actually see it that in two versions, but you see the just the whole sort of world that these characters are inhabiting. And also just how these characters have to kind of what what they're doing to kind of maneuver through the world and also just how they see themselves in the society. And of course, as it happens a lot, you if you're if you're the lead in your story, you know, well especially if you're a man, you're going to think you're more sympathetic to the audience watching you. And if you're a woman, you just have like no like rights or hope at all. And that's kind of the the backdrop I think for for what what's really brilliant about this movie. I don't know if I explained that well enough, but yeah,
2: yeah. I agree you're right. And there's This movie also does a really good job of demonstrating kind of how the feudal economy shapes the emotional bonds between the characters. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that complicates the duel, um, besides the fact that at the time period people don't trust women, is that the Matt Damon character and the Adam Driver character have a pre-existing beef.
3: I will not be patronized by this squire who lies about court, waiting to be fated with gift upon gift upon gift, and risks nothing, nothing. He may acquire more property in this world, find more favor Eat more, drink more, bed more, and otherwise call himself a man of arms. But in this hall, and any other, in my company, he will call me Sir. 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 Indeed. Good Sir.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, Matt Damon was supposed to get land... After, like, the death of his dad, Um, you know, and then, like, but the land is just kind of taken by Adam Driver, and this kind of furthers the animosity that's between them, and... Plus, uh, the
2: initial marriage between, like, jean Crouge and Lady and...
1: Marguerite. Yeah,
2: is she wants, like, Matt Damon wants the fat dowry. Yeah. So, these people have really complicated relationships with each other, which means that when Matt Damon's, like, my wife was raped, because as the movie explicitly tells us, rape is a property crime against him.
1: Yes. It's it's, not a
2: crime against her. It's a property crime against him.
1: Yeah, again, that's how few rights women had back then. Even compared to now, it's like a woman couldn't really go to the authorities and say, this man raped me. I want to, you know, press charges against him. It was only through the marriage. Like... In a a strange way, it's almost lucky that she was married to him because otherwise, like, what could she do about it? And that point is, that's even made to her by another woman in the movie that, you know, like, I was, you know, I was raped too, like, but I don't say it because what's it gonna do for me? And that, you know, there's so much in politically, this movie is just, like, so so smart. And and yet, it doesn't get bogged down in that. It's still an extremely entertaining, you know, uh, you know, one of these kinds of, uh, you know, intensely acted like period movies. Um, you know, we have you can't also not talk about. We didn't even touch on Ben Affleck
2: having the time of his fucking life.
1: Yeah, easily. You know, even though this probably could have been nominated for other Oscars, like he seems like the real snub and. Really bizarrely got a Razzie instead of an Oscar nomination, you know. And he's yeah, he's having like he's fits this because he plays like one of these. uh, He's because he's not a knight; he's just like one of these landowner types, I guess. I forget what his title is, but he he's basically like a boss to Adam Driver. Like he's kind of his sort of mentor and. Uh, you know, Matt Damon has to kind of kiss his ring, Ben Affleck's ring once or twice. Um, and yeah, Ben Affleck is just, you know, he says it best about the Matt Damon character in the w- way. He says, he's no fucking fun. And it's like that. It shows that level of privilege that a lot of men could get in that world where it's like, Hey, I could just lie around and like fuck women and like treat people like crap and have a great time doing it. And you know he I think livens up the film in some in a really key moment. Um, you know, Am Driver and Lady Comer, Lady Com- uh, Jody Comer, are great. I even like Matt Damon too. They're all uh, terrific.
2: And what they do a really good job with the Rashomon style plot because the three different narratives are different enough to be entertaining. Like you're never bored. You're never thinking, "Oh, I just saw this." So they're different enough to be good, like that you're never bored, but they're not so different from each other that you think to yourself, wait a minute, how could these people view this same event so differently from each other? Right. So they walk a great, I think, I like a Rashomon style plot, but you got to walk, a, I think, a kind of fine line yes. where it has to be different enough, but also similar enough. And they do a really good job with that.
1: Well, it's you know they they do a they they do a good job of showing a like a few key scenes like multiple times, but then you see other scenes like in one like in the Adam Driver segment that you didn't see Mm -hmm. in the first one, and as the film goes on, you realize oh, Matt Damon's character John DeCaroos was thinking of himself very highly. Or or not highly, but he was thinking of himself as a very like poor me character in his segment. Where the longer you see him, you just see like this guy was chowed like all over, and you know the how he tries to, you know, you know demand power from the other characters, and the way that he, you know, in especially in Jody Comer's segment, how he is treating his wife, and you see you know, a version of, you know, you see how she saw him react uh, to her telling her, to her revealing the rape, as opposed to when Matt Damon says he heard her tell him and his more, like, sensitivish, uh, you know, reaction. It's just a really, it gives you a lot of insight into how just human beings try to rationalize their, you know, experiences and relationships and their experiences to power.
2: Yeah, I love this movie. This was actually my number five of the year.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, I, in another year, this could have been higher. But uh, again, I, I just, there are a lot of really strong entries this year.
2: Okay, so you're number eight and my number five. This means, well, my number seven was Spencer. Yeah. So we're going to my number six.
1: Well, oh, should I mention my number seven? Oh, yeah. My number seven was Red Rocket.
2: Red Rocket's my number six.
1: (laughs) Well, that that makes it easier then. There you go. Um, Red Rocket. um, Simon
2: Rex robbed. Robbed.
1: Oh, one of the, certainly one of the the deserving Oscar nominees. uh, You know, I would have also, I think this also got snubbed in cinematography. Um, I think Sean Baker, as I think his films, maybe just they're so like he—you could tell he loves film so much. And in fact, this was shot on 16 millimeter. That's why it would have been fun if he had gotten if the cinematographer got Oscar nominated because it looks gorgeous. But aside from that, I think his his films deal with very—I um, don't know if the word is edgy. But, like, you know, material that is just, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, you know, his, his characters are, you know, based, you know, sometimes very, you know, they're prostitutes, they're drug addicts, uh, you know, there's a film Starlet that also, like Red Rocket, has a, a porn actor as a leading character. Um, and I, I love that, you know, Red characters is based, Red, Red, Red Character, Red Rocket is, uh, you know, it's about a guy who, you know, it was a kind of a, we find out he was a porn actor in L.A. We don't know what happened to him. He comes back to his home in Texas, you know, some sort of very small town, and basically is spending his time there trying to con his way into, you know, maybe grooming this woman, this young like seventeen-year-old to be a, a porn star, or maybe to con other ways that he can make money and bounce back. And I think I've told you this uh, a couple of times uh, since we've seen the movie. It feels like one of the best films about the the Trump era.
2: Yeah, so the movie is very pointedly set in 2016, but before the election. So yeah. the characters, basically, Mikey moves back in with his ex-wife and well, her mother. Well no,
1: no, no, no. It's actually his wife. Yes. They've never divorced. It's just, you know, he went away for so long and never, you know, did anything with the marriage. You're- it's just they basically act like they're, you know, not they're they're, they're they are exes but they're not.
2: <laughs> they they're still legally bound even though they've broken up in every other sense of the word. But he returns back to their home and he basically worms his way back in and they the wife, the mother, they have the, they have their TVs on blaring 24-7. And yes. they have the news on a lot. Yeah. So you hear these Trump clips. And it's an obvious parallel that basically the kind of penny-ante scams that Mikey's running on the people mm-hmm. around him are basically the types of scams that Trump would be running if he didn't have... The influence and money
0: that
1: he has. Well, in a way, though, but he also, they're really the scams I think Trump does run. I mean, he basically, in a sense, like he's kind of, I feel like he's must have, he's groomed someone in his life, but like in a way, he's kind of like groomed his base because they're such like easy marks in some ways. Well,
2: basically, Trump is grifting on the macro level, Mikey's grifting on the micro level.
1: Ah. Good way of, yeah, good good way of phrasing that, absolutely. So,
2: Trump is grifting millions, Mikey's grifting a handful of people. And frankly, the people that he's grifting are kind of on the lower rungs of the ladder themselves. Like, the people around him, they're poor, they're drug addicted, they're kind of down and out.
1: Yeah, or and also, like, the, the girl that he's, uh, you know, that he's basically, you know, trying to... Uh, to make a, a quote unquote star, um, you know, Strawberry, she, stra, yeah, her name's Strawberry, and uh, played by Susanna Son, it's basically her first real movie. Uh, a lot of the actors in this movie, uh, are not uh, uh, necessarily the, w- the way you usually think of professionals. Like, he picked out a lot of people, some people, like one act, one performer in the movie was like walking a dog, and he just said, like, She looks good, I'll cast her. Um, but. Yeah, he yeah he, he works and Mikey is like operating on this level where, you know, he can't like con people like in a suit and tie. He can con people at the donut shop or, you know, or in like uh, some other place. And it, yet the movie is very, very funny. Yes. It's it, That's the key thing is that Sean Baker never loses sight that, you know, this guy, you know, we're seeing things from his perspective a lot of the time. But he's also like very pathetic as a human being.
2: Well, I mentioned earlier that Nightmare Alley was an absolute disaster in terms of trying to represent a con man.
1: Uh, this, good, good comparison. On the other
2: hand, is a fantastic portrait of a con man because we understand intimately exactly how Mikey's able to con these people. Yeah. Because,
1: well,. When you say intimately, don't forget it also involves his penis. Yeah. <laughs>
2: but even though this man is basically a grenade that detonates everywhere he goes and brings nothing but misery everywhere he goes. Yeah. You totally understand why the wife lets him back in. Yeah. You totally understand why he gets a neighbor to drive him around all the time.
1: It it manages to do a thing that, in a way, and also to compare another movie, I mean, it also, I think, satirizes society better than, like, Don't Look Up, because it shows that, you know, people easily can fall for bullshit if it's just given with, like, enough, like, if the person selling it believes it.
2: Yeah, so Mikey is such a smooth operator. And again, the people around him are kind of broken down in a lot of ways. So yeah. their defenses are lowered mm-hmm. by the by their environment, by their poverty, by their addictions. So watching this guy wheel and deal is such a pleasure. But it's also, you know, kind of uncomfortable in the perfect way. Because you're watching this and honestly... It's a pleasure to watch him <laughs> con people. Sometimes.
1: It is. It is. Yeah. It's like that's where it's. It's such a. Del- I love a delicious black comedy like this where it's like you know this guy is such a piece of shit. But like, well, you also after, right after the movie you brought up Wolf of Wall Street too, and yes. it has a little bit of that as well. Like if Wolf of Wall Street went bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> It has that kind of attention to like you know the yeah you, even though you know like this guy is just like you know you, you, you can you should you could see right through him there's a real entertainment to seeing him like yeah, the conning these people or conning his like friend the way that he like talks up himself and is constantly bragging to like this one like local guy who kind of knew him before. And about, like, his porn career. Yeah, And if, fe- but because it, it feels believable. This is, like, what people do in life who, like, have this place. So, Red Rocket, awesome.
2: Yeah, and best use of the song Bye 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 you're ever going to see in a movie, ever. I feel yes. pretty confident.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to watch it again. So, I know since that was your number six, we can go into my number six, which was uh, The Green Knight. This um, is
2: higher on my list.
1: Okay. Now, we also did talk about this a little bit uh, as well in another episode. Uh, we we talked about it a bit with uh, actually guest star McIntyre in our Suicide Squad episode because we saw both of them together. Um, I mean, the only thing I would really add, because it's, again, I think it's sensational, mesmerizing, you know, throw a lot of adjectives in there. Um, I feel like this this could have easily gotten some technical nominations.
2: It's an embarrassment that it didn't.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I it would have been a stretch for it to get, like, director or maybe Dev Patel. Maybe he's, like, kind of a dark horse. Do you think it was just too weird for Oscar voters?
2: Maybe. But just the design of the Green Knight himself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the design of the Green Knight the well, I, I remember just weird things in that movie that just kind of pervade my memory. Like, wasn't there like a giant hand? Yes, yeah, that giant hand was amazing. I love the uh, that sexual scene between uh, Dev Patel and uh, the uh, the one fe- the one woman character, yeah, like, Alicia McCandor. Well, because she plays two parts, yeah. that's right. Yeah, it's just, it's just a movie you can sink into in like a great way. It's, I'm going to use a word that normally I know you like is anathema. It's meditative. No. Yes, it is. Kind of.
2: I absolutely love this movie. This is my number (laughs) three of the year. I think it's incredible. Yeah. Basically, this also has a bit of a vignette structure because the Green Knight has to go on a quest. Yes. And he encounters various people on his quest. And each character, like each character he encounters on his journey, does a great job illuminating a different aspect of this world. Yeah. I also absolutely love this movie. Because it's really about death and living with our mortality. And this, yes. is, this is something I struggle with, the knowledge of inevitable oh, death. Oh,
1: I do too. I absolutely do too. I also think it really does a great job of, struggling, of addressing that idea that writers have been dealing and create, artists have been working through for millennia, which is, you know, trying to be a hero in... A world that you know what is that what does heroism get you and again part of it also you know if you're trying to face death you know what how how does that heroism really stack up are you going to be remembered for your heroic acts you know what if I do a heroic deed is that really going to change me and that's like the last like 15 minutes of the movie which is its own like like oh my god oh my god this fucking movie like, it's so great. Like, it, it also challenges that in a really special way. So,
2: yeah, each of the character, I feel like each of the characters we meet has a very different response to this overarching question, which is, how do I build a life with meaning and purpose with the shadow of death hanging over me all the time? Yeah. Because this, too, is a much harsher, crueler world than the world we live in now. Mm -hmm. So, I feel like this is the burden every character is struggling with. How do I build a life in the constant shadow of death? And some characters believe very much in order and codes of chivalry and the law. Other characters are just nihilists, and they rely on just brute strength. Mm -hmm. And this movie looks absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, that's why I meant like you can sink into it. The it's an extremely tactile uh, viewing experience. You you get like into an entire mo- mood every time that you're you know following Dev Patel like and and his point of view of where he's at in the in this in these different environments is extremely. Uh, you know, harrowing.
2: Well, I'm literally getting like chills talking about it.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh boy. It's that good. I it's... can feel the goosebumps.
2: Yeah. This is my number three movie of the year. Yeah. I loved it.
1: Yeah. We're now getting into, I think, uh, some of the major titles now. Um, so what was your number five?
2: The Last Duel. Well,
1: there you go. Um, well, I'm wondering if I sh- should we get into if number five, because your my number five is, gonna, is your number one. Which okay. is Pig?
2: Yes, Pig is your number five and my number one of the movie of the year. Pig never budged from the number one spot, like ever since I saw it. Pig is like my number one by a, a snout.
1: <laughs> Aww, yeah. Um, not exactly the cutest pig ever in the that's in the movie, but that that's neither here nor there. Um, but. Yeah. With pig was probably my best surprise of the year. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't had no real sense that this was coming out, you know, Nicolas cage, the way that his career is gone as of late. I mean, it's been not, not too great, uh, over the past, um, you know, like decade or so for him as, you know, a lot of his movies don't really even go into theaters um, he hasn't gone full Bruce Willis yet. <laughs> um, I think you could still tell he cares. In, in case in point, like by this movie. Um, but what was so surprising was just the level of how it strips your heart bare, or the characters. It you know, because for those who don't know, like the basic premise, it sounds like almost it could be. I was a little. My worry going in was, is this gonna be like taken, but with Nicholas Cage and a pig because he's a, a truffle farmer in the woods and he's very much all alone by himself with this one pig and he's getting truffles that he basically deals with this one other character. Um oh who's the younger guy in it? Do you remember now? Amir. Uh, yeah, Amir. Um uh, played by uh one Alex of the Wolf. wolves. Out one of the wolves, yeah. I was I was gonna say Nate Wolf, but it was Axel, thank you. Um, and then someone kidnaps his pig. And so he goes on a journey. Um, maybe not unlike the Green Knight. It's funny how two of your favorite films this year are quest movies. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it... And at first you think, is this going to go into a lot of violence? Like, he, go, he goes to this one, like, organization that seems like it's part of the network of other chefs. And we find out, actually, that, that Nicholas Cage's mm. character is was a chef and it's in that world that this is uh really taking place in and it it the way that it ends up using uh that you you really find it's not just about what happened to this guy it's also about what it felt like to go to be to to be all alone and i think it manages to capture how um you know, life can be very lonesome if you don't have, like, love in it.
2: Yeah, I think another similarity between this and The Green Knight is they're both set in kind of fantastical worlds because the world of, what is it, Portland Yeah, and Pig, it's not, like, our Earth Portland in all respects. There's this, like, weird fight club element. Yeah there's this element, there's like this fantastical element to it. So the world building is quite exotic in pig, but the emotional core of the movie is something that I think anyone can relate to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it, once you, you know, once you realize it's, you know, he has a key line at one point, like, I, I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone, but at one point he finally admits to Alex Wolf, like, The pig didn't really do the truffle hunting. You know, I didn't need the pig for that. I just, you know, it's my pig. And that, like, really hits you because it's like, oh, my God. Like, it's really, like, about how you need something, someone in your life or, or something to give your life meaning. And, you know, part of that is also what having a gift, like cooking can mean. And the cooking itself becomes like this metaphor in in one's life too. And how you prepare food and what sort of what you put into making something.
2: Yeah, there are multiple um, like speeches that Nicolas Cage gave in this movie that made me cry. Basically I was sobbing. You were in the theater with me. I was full on (laughs) sobbing for basically the entire second half of the movie. It starts when He visits the home he used to live in with his wife and talks about a persimmon tree that was in the backyard. And what's fascinating, too, is this is also a total deconstruction of the revenge film.
1: Yeah. Which I'm not
2: really used to seeing because he goes on a revenge quest initially that wouldn't be out of place in John Wick. But... He ends up in a very different place, and when he has his final showdown with what he thinks is going to be a villain, they share a meal and have a talk. And Nicholas Cage is like open and vulnerable.
1: Yeah, and it affects the other guy too. Oh God, you're <laughs> I'm
2: gonna start crying. He's talking about the movie.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but... yeah. Well, it, well, it, it, that's the thing that the film has this very vivid emotional core to it. As you said, it, it really, uh, it's about, it's not even, a, it's, it's about how we are connecting to each other or not connecting and how if that connection breaks, it can make things extremely hard to like live a life and what this pig did for Nicolas Cage for so yeah. long, you know, it, it was, you know, it, it's, it wasn't just like, oh, I have this companion pig. It was like a part of his soul. And by not having that with him anymore, it just, you know, it, it tore him apart. And that's like not things that you usually get in like a John Wick. It's like John Wick's dog dies. It's like, okay, well, now we know he's going to go and fight back. but But you don't get that here. It's really more existential.
2: Yeah, and the fact that for all his character, Robin, loses over the course of a film, and for all the ways he suffers, he never loses his humanity. And when he finally again confronts the man who took his last tether to society Mm -hmm. away from him, you know, you think, is he going to kill this guy? But no, he makes him a meal, and they have this moment of deep emotional connection, And it's just so
1: beautiful. It's
2: it's so powerful that
1: it's okay. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm literally crying just thinking about the movie. It's that good.
3: It's okay.
2: Clear number one. Like nothing else really like challenges. And it's also like
1: well, well, it's also Nicolas Cage is just plumbing the kinds of depths that we just you know, he, I, I haven't seen him do work this deep in, like, such a long time. And, you know, I'll keep talking as you, like, blow your nose. Yeah. <laughs> Talk for a second, <laughs> you, you, you big softie. Um, you know, you watch something like Leaving Las Vegas uh, with him. And, you know, he plays, like, this very broken man in that film. Um, and he's, like, in a way, similarly broken in this um, and it's just, you're seeing, as you said, like when he has that conversation, that brokenness and vulnerability is just like cracked open. It cracks open a little bit midway through the film, too, because there's a scene where he goes and talks to this other chef in a restaurant. And that's also a very heartbreaking scene that goes not where you expect it, because he really ha- makes this
0: chef open up, too. <sighs> I really, um, I respect you, chef, I always have, but I'm running a business here and people have expectations. Uh, critics, uh, investors, so forth. And uh, uh, truffles are, 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 are a, a key part of the whole uh, concept of the winter menu and, and they need to be the top of the line. So you understand. I, I, I have the utmost respect for you. At most.
3: What is the concept
0: here? Um, well, uh, we're interested in taking local ingredients, uh, native to this region, and and just. Deconstructing them, you know, making the the familiar feel foreign. Thereby giving us an even greater appreciation of food as a whole.
3: This is the kind of cooking you like?
0: It's cutting edge. It's very exciting. Exciting. I mean, everybody loves it.
3: You like cooking it? Absolutely. Derek. What was it you always used to talk about opening?
0: Wasn't that a pub? Every, everyone loves it here. This is it's a huge success. Why didn't you open your pub? I, 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 I don't know what that I, I really wanted. Uh, I mean, this such a long time ago.
3: When I fired you, I asked you what you wanted to do. You said you have a few rooms upstairs, a real English pub.
0: Did I say say that? Yes. Nobody wants pubs around here. It's just a a, a terrible investment.
3: What was going to be your signature dish?
0: Liver scotch eggs with a honey curry mustard.
3: (laughs) (laughs) They're not real. You get that, right? None of it is real. The critics aren't real. The customers aren't real because this isn't real. You aren't real. Okay. Derek, why do you care about these people? They don't care about you, none of them. They don't even know you because you haven't shown them. Every day you'll wake up and there'll be less of you. You live your life for them. And they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. We don't get a lot of things to really care about.
1: my pick um in the moment and i you know i again i love this film as well um i maybe didn't quite it didn't get quite as high only because in this this is gonna sound like a criticism and it's not visually it was a little bit like monochromatic for me like it was all kind of like one color and i'm not putting that down like it's a brilliant it's a great color choice for this movie and what's funny is, I think we talked about this before, normally if a film has this kind of look, uh. it's not very appealing, but it it also reflects the guy's soul.
2: Yeah. This movie is incredible. It has intense emotional power. It's dealing with seriously the most important questions that any human being wrestles with. Yeah. Because the characters in this movie are all dealing with things like, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Nicholas Cage and the meaning of life. <laughs> All
3: right.
2: I actually love this movie. It was my number one. Again, no other movie like really came close to Pig for mm. me. As much, As much as I love every other movie on my list, obviously, mm-hmm. Pig, nothing came. There was never a moment. There was not one second from the time I saw it until now where I doubted Pig was my
1: number one movie of the year oh. unless if like Parasite 2 would come out I
2: would Parasite. <laughs> <that.
1: laughs> Bong Joon-ho <laughs> comes in does the body slam on Nicolas Cage um, alright so moving on now uh, what's number 4
2: Worst Person in the World
1: same for me number 4 good uh, so we can talk about this together
3: said goodbye to me, I looked in the mirror, then I began to cry, I leave my things behind for all to see, and hope that she'll understand why, ending the game is like changing the
0: name of your favorite song, If you're happy with me, if you love me, then we'll fix everything else. Yes, I love you. But I don't love
1: you. Wow, what a... Um, what a delightful... You know, this movie has almost it all, I could say. Um, you know, no relation to the Keith Olbermann bit from his old uh, MSNBC show. Um those are no world's worst the I keep calling it world's worst person. The worst person the the reason why because if I start saying the title, I feel like world the worst person in the world this week goes to <laughs> uh Rush Limbaugh. No. Um worst person in the world, it comes from Joaquin Trier. Trier, hope I'm saying his name right, And uh, uh I believe Norway. Yes. Yeah uh, Yeah, Oslo. It's actually the last part of a trilogy of films he's made. I haven't seen the other ones. I should. Um, and it all uh, is about this uh, young woman uh, played by uh, Renate Resniv. Renate Re- Renate Re- Renate. I'm, I'm not even to pretend to pronounce her name. Her name
2: names. is Julie in the movie.
1: Thank you. I'll just call her Julie. That works. So Julie is... Um, Uh, you know, we, we see her early on and the narrator kind of tells us the story's told in chapters, um, 12 different chapters of the prologue and epilogue. And she's this young woman who's kind of indecisive in her life. She starts wanting to want to try to be a doctor, doesn't want to do that. Maybe therapist doesn't want to do that. Is it going to be photography? Is she going to do something else? And we're seeing her, uh, in this relationship with this, uh, you know cartoonist uh, guy who you know, is very uh a very formidable person in her life and she um and i'll I'll come back to how they start their relationship because it's a really fascinating moment but you're seeing how she's um you know trying to get through this you know going through this relationship not total, you know not always totally happy but part of that's also about herself and then she meets another man and there i don't know if i'm describing it correctly cuz it's there's so much that is, goes on in this film and yet it's trying to describe it as a plot almost does a disservice to how rich an experience it is because it's such a engrossing very you know very sometimes funny but dramatically just so compelling kind of character study well
2: basically It's a coming of age movie, but not coming of age from childhood to adulthood, but basically coming of age from like unsettled adulthood to more settled adulthood. It's basically, we follow the character from her 20s into being around 30. Yeah. And it's really following this character, trying to figure out who am I? What do I want? And she's someone that has an inherent restlessness. She has a very questing nature. And she's someone who's obviously not going to be satisfied in the same place for long, with the same person for long, with the same job for long. So I look at her almost as doing the life equivalent of... If you've ever been trying to get dressed for work in the morning and you put on like five outfits and you just chuck them (laughs) off again. She's basically doing that at a macro level. She's doing that with careers. She feels restless in her relationship with this older man. Even though the relationship is very functional and satisfying to her in a lot of ways. And... I think you mentioned the kind of setup for their relationship. What's amazing about it, there's this great scene where the older man, Axel, tells her, Mm -hmm. he gives a little monologue about why they're going to break up because of this age difference. And he lays out precisely how the age difference is going to create this rift in their relationship as compatible as they otherwise are. And that's exactly what happens in the movie. Yeah,
1: and she, like, she leaves the place. She leaves the the apartment after he tells her this. And then she says, like, I realized right then, I had, you know, he gave me all these reasons that made me want to be with him all the more. You know, and that's, like, one of those things that is just about what it means to be in a relationship, to be in love with someone sometimes, where even if you know, even if you think, and we talked about, after the film, how of all things it made us think of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. which is another film that wrestles with this question of: if I'm not made for this person, am I still going to try to be with her? Because it's just I'm still so attracted to, and so you know, I I like maybe who I am with this person or who I want mm-hmm. to try to be, and yet. You know, but the problem is that with times things get so hard, maybe I can't deal with that or who I am with that person, and so I try to run away. Like, that sensibility is realized in such a, um, you know, captivating cinematic way. And when I say cinematic, there are times where Trier doesn't make, you know, there are times where this movie is very naturalistic, but other times it really becomes like, you're seeing things in her head.
2: Yeah. And basically, Axel... Again, he's older. He's fundamentally settled and established. He knows who he is. He's comfortable with the life he's built thus far. But now he wants to take another step. He wants a child. He wants... And... And,
1: did we, and we mentioned, too, he's, yeah, he's older than her, too.
2: Yeah. He's established in his career... His friends are older, his friends have children, he wants children, so she's dealing with this am I ready to settle down with this guy, plus she has an utterly intoxicating evening Yes, with a man who's on her, who's her age and really on her level, like he's a barista. She works in a bookstore. So they're on the same level professionally, unlike her boyfriend, who's much more accomplished than she is,
1: even though he's with someone else too. And and that's, yeah. And you're seeing in this one night where they kind of meet and bond and, and, you know, like, Oh no, what, like this is going to lead to something like probably not great. Um, but yet, what it what's why well, again? What I said before is, I love the approach in the script and also in the performances where Alava is very like naturalistic. But then you'll have a moment where Julie kind of has this realization with Axel, like, wait, you know, I really don't want to be here at this moment. I want to go to uh the other guy. And she literally flicks a switch in the room, and you know leaves the apartment and goes running outside. And the entire world has just frozen in place as she's running to meet the other guy, and they go off like on have a uh, a moment together, a very intimate exchange, and it's something that feels like a fantastical sort of beat. And yet, it still feels of a piece with the rest of the film. It feels like we're getting a sense of her inner life, and how, in a, in a way, it also reflects how she's, you know, she just and some people have this in life where they just want to run away from the person they're with and go meet someone else, um, even though it's a, a very irresponsible thing. But it reflects also that with the the visual idea of falling for someone yes. and and wanting to be and nothing else in the world matters except going to that person and you know it almost sounds very romantic like the world stops when I'm around you but how he stages it is just you know a directorial I'm gonna use one of these words. It's a tour de force.
2: I love the drug trip scene too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I was a big fan of that as well. Um Especially because it it it, high a lot of drug trip scenes sometimes can get played out in movies, but with her, but in this case for Julie, she a lot of it comes back to her own like body issues and also even a little bit of doesn't she hold a baby at some point in the drug trip too?
2: Yeah, she holds a baby. She's other people like. Kind of glomming on all over flesh. She paints her face with her menstrual blood.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that in that scene. It's Uh,
2: very fresh imagery.
1: Yes. I don't know if I want to say too much about where the film goes story-wise If for Mm. people who maybe want to see it and haven't seen it yet. Um, Because the last, like, I don't know if you call it act, like the last few chapters of the film, so to speak, because of how it's cut up. That's another thing I love, too. Is even though it's in a chapter structure, which, you know, it's that maybe auteurs, it's getting a little tired. The way that the chapters roll out, it's like sometimes a chapter is a good 15, 20 minutes. And other mm. times it's just like a few minutes. Like when she, when Julie comes up with the the short story, which again is another example of her trying something different as, you know, mm. trying to be creative. And it's actually a good moment for her, even though she doesn't stick with it in the last few chapters of the movie something a lot more dramatic happens um and i don't want to say what it is but it makes the movie it makes it it takes it from being almost like a very good movie to being like really great i think and again where it leads the characters i wish i could say more but i want to kind of leave the that experience for everyone to kind of because I, I would assume that maybe not a lot of people listening have seen the movie yet. Um, it's still playing in some theaters uh, and it's one of the nominees in both I think for a foreign film and maybe screenplay, screenplay? yeah and she uh, the, the Renate actress I'm not gonna say her name uh, she was probably good enough that she could have gotten a big nomination. time snub in the best actress category. Yeah, absolutely. So great film, Good work. Worst person in the world. Good person. Um, number All right, three. right, we've
2: only really got two movies left to discuss. So yeah,
1: let's just get in them because Drive My Car was my number three. We you already you already said your number three was uh, the Green Knight. The Green Knight. Why
2: don't we just read our lists from ten to one really fast, just so everyone knows, and then we'll talk about the last two movies.
1: Exactly. So my number ten, my number from ten to ten to one, Souvenir Part Two. Number no- was number ten. Number nine, Spencer. Number eight, The Last Duel. Number seven, Red Rocket. Number six, Green Knight. Number five, Pig. Number four, Worst Person in the World. Number three, Drive My Car. Number two, Licorice Pizza. And number one, West Side Story. Did
2: you skip Spencer? No, I said Spencer. No. It's number okay. nine. All right, mine from 10 to 1. Number 10 is Belfast. Number nine is West Side Story. Number eight is Shiva Baby. Number seven is Spencer. Number six is Red Rocket. Number five is The Last Duel. Number four is The Worst Person in the World. Number three is The Green Knight. Number two is Licorice Pizza. Number one is Pig. So let's just do Licorice Pizza, then West Side Story.
1: You got it. And uh, um, so, yeah, that Paul Thomas Anderson, what's with him making great movies?
0: Scooch over. Oh. back it up. Oh. Oh. We're going back up the hill, okay? Okay. how'd oh, it turn out? It's good. Well wow. Well, you didn't up my house, did you? No. You okay? Can you see okay? Yeah. Why don't you just why don't you just back in the driveway and then you can go straight? Hey! Hey! You blew it, man. You blew it. Did she call? No. God damn it, Steve. <laughs> no gas in the goddamn car Steve-o!
1: <laughs> um, I should say, too, like, it was really close, and for a time, Liquor's Pizza and Wesley's Story, they could almost have been flipped. Like, for a time, I said that Licorice Pizza was my number one, but I'll get to why it's not quite anymore, but it's still a, an exhilarating, you know, uh, experience uh, from beginning to end with, with the story. Um, and... You know, like some other, in a way, I, I would with the way that we were just talking about worst person in the world too. You could make, uh, could you make a connection maybe with licorice pizza?
2: Oh, definitely, because I think the Alana character is wrestling with a lot of the same things Julie's wrestling with in the worst person in the world. Alana's thing, I see, not not so much trying to figure out what I'm trying to do in some kind of big. I need to establish meaning sense. I think Alana's problem more is I've become an adult and I've realized I don't like it here very much. No,
1: no. I. I adulthood
2: become... is hard.
1: <laughs> yeah. Adulthood is hard. Having like relationships with guys who are complete bore, awful guys or are ter- not good. Also dealing with the fact that as I'm a young woman, older men, kind of eye me a certain way that is you know maybe initially kind of like something that i could like but is really not my thing um you know this film is uh you know for again for those uh, liquor's pizza new paul thomas anderson film you know chronicling uh the the sort of uh growing friendship slash relationship you know who knows what it is between Uh, Alana and Gary Valentine uh, played by Alana Haim and uh, um, Cooper Hoffman who, you know, and like in Hoffman, uh, his character is, you know, a a teen actor, like, or he's trying to be, well, at first he's like a kind of a child actor, he kind of phases out of that um, and then he, throughout the movie is trying, you know, different things to maybe make it in some kind of way as a you know, sort of entrepreneur of a kind and him, you know, becoming a little bit more adept at or, or trying to do these little schemes. You know, this gets kind of contrasted with Alana trying to figure out what she wants to do and not having a great go of it.
2: Yeah. So basically, Gary's very precocious and he's a 15 year old who wants to he wants to fast forward to where Alana is. Mm-hmm. He's a 15-year-old who wants to be 25 immediately. Mm-hmm. Alana's a 20-something. I say 20-something because she actually states her age at different ages throughout the movie. She most consistently says she's 25, but she doesn't always say she's 25. Yeah,
1: well, there's one point yeah, where she says she's 28 uh, at, a, at a key moment, and... You could tell that she's older than than yeah. Gary, but what's what I like in the movie and is that you almost can't tell because emotionally she might be also fifteen.
2: Yeah, so basically she's a twenty something who wants nothing more than to be fifteen. He's a fifteen year old who wants nothing more to be a twenty something. He's he's eager to grow up. She's eager to kind of regress.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and they have the, and what's, what I love too is that they're, they're sort of uh, their own kind of, gro- like, growth or anti-growth or mm-hmm. stunted growth, whatever you want to call it, it, it kind of becomes intertwined because of how they are, um, you know, also trying to do things in the work, you know, in a professional sense, and coming up against a lot of adults who are very at times weird and off-putting and not very, sometimes not very pleasant, uh maybe even stupidly racist in one case. Uh And it's, uh, it's just the, the world that, that that Anderson creates here is just, you, you, you feel like you're there with them too. You're like there, you're along for the ride and, I forget, we, we talked about kind of like hang a Hangout movie. Yeah. And this is like one of like my new favorite Hangout movies I've they, ever seen. You just love hanging out with these characters.
2: Yeah, and I think you get right from the beginning how much these people need each other. How yes. they both fulfill this like desperate psychological need that the other one has. You know, the teen to be recognized as an adult, the adult to go back to the relative comfort of being a teen. Their chemistry is incredible. Yes. They play off each other so well. And you're right. This, it reminded me of kind of like the very best of Richard Linklater when I was watching this. Like Richard Linklater at the absolute like peak of his powers. And
1: there are even a couple, there are a few times where I wonder if it was intentional. Somehow... The way that Cooper Hoffman talks, he almost sounds like a Linklater character. I yeah. don't know why, like a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah, the be- definitely the best of that. And I like too that the film is uh it's another it's episodic and yet it feels all of a piece together everything mm-hmm. that happens in it. And oh god, there's just so much like, it, you know, it's also it, it emphasizes too. I think, better than most movies I've ever seen. Just, you know, there are a lot of creeps in Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, and especially like and a lot of the actors in it don't get a lot of time, you know, that. And yet you get a full idea of who this person is in a brief amount of what, when they're there. So, I mean, Sean Penn is in the film. Um, Benny Safty. Yeah. is a a politician character who has a really pivotal point for Alana and later in the story. You got to John Michael Higgins, who has caused a little bit of uh, controversy with some critics uh, and audiences. Um, oh, oh, my God. Oh, I, I feel so bad. I'm forgetting her name. The actress who, like, there's one point where, Gary actually takes Alana to maybe like talk with like a casting agent.
2: Oh, she was incredible.
1: Yeah. The scene, that scene and Alana listing all these things that she can do, even though she's clearly bullshitting is hilarious. And that's the thing too, that like this movie is why it's also so much fun is because it's just constantly funny. You're, you're just having such a good time with these characters. And yet, I still think it's an extremely substantial movie too. It's not like a lark. It's like really dealing seriously with what these characters are feeling. It's just also that Anderson knows like when you're young, you do, you know, things can be really silly and stupid sometimes.
2: Well, yeah, I loved like,
1: you know, like being like trying to sell waterbeds and, you know, try to start a, like a, a, a pinball uh business
2: if you are a person who likes capers you are <laughs> in luck
1: if you are someone who ever wanted to see john peters as a character in a movie tearing through los angeles in the middle of the night this movie's for you
2: another kind of thing that this reminded me of when we watched it is You and I watched a documentary about Mm. this water park called Action Park, Mm. which became kind of nationally famous because it was a very unsafe water park where people literally died and were constantly injured. Mm -hmm. And there's this thread in the movie where these people are reminiscing about being in Action Park and talking about how they would have these moments where they were having so much fun. They were almost delirious, but there was always this, like, thread of danger because the park was so unsafe. And that's kind of how I thought about Licorice Pizza because I feel like these characters, there are scenes where the characters are just having so much fun and are so joyous, and yeah. they f- they literally, like, frolic like puppies. But every once in a while, like, you see this edge where you say, um... There's bigotry expressed by multiple characters because the casting director to Alana, are you Jewish? Oh, yeah, Are you yeah. Jewish?
1: Yeah. You know what's funny? Like, a lot of the... You raise a great point. I, I didn't... Wow. Because a lot of the attention, like, John Michael Higgins, he plays this character who, like, he, he's working with, like, this Japanese restaurant mm. or something, and he constantly will talk in this incredibly tasteless, like, Japanese voice. And I think that part of what audiences are like or some critics are were, were worried is like, are people going to be laughing because he's like saying a racial voice? Are people going to understand, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or and of course, Paul Thomas Anderson in an interview recently, I don't know if you saw this, he was like, what people don't understand that this guy's an idiot. <laughs> so you have him. But you're right. that Yeah, the, the casting agent is like anti-Semitic. Wow. Good, yeah, good. Good call on that one. Yeah.
2: So obviously this is a persistent, like, through line through the film where Paul Thomas Anderson is saying, like, every like, it's both true. You you can have like golden tinged nostalgia memories of your past, yes. but there's always that dark underbelly.
1: A- Absolutely. Yes. This movie is it's nostalgic, but it's not it doesn't kid itself about what the world was like then where, yeah, mm. it was, it could be bigoted. You could have, it was misogynistic. Yeah. It was, you know, very much like I'm going to have this woman now. And you know, that's it. You know, the, the John Peters character, you know, Bradley Cooper is, you know, a total, uh, mad pussy hound. Uh, and then of course also, you know, you know, uh, deeply you know men had to be closeted too as yeah. as you find out in that last segment
2: so i think this movie is legitimately nostalgic but it it doesn't comp it's not a dishonest nostalgia
1: well well that's you know he um i i think anderson has said that he was inspired by you know i mean i think he mentioned Days and confused but he also mentioned uh american graffiti mm-hmm. as a big influence and i could see that as well as how like and there's even a part where uh, I think Gary and his mom are like eating at a burger stand (laughs) and you know, there's like a, a a melancholy little moment there I won't mention, but like he, you know, he's, but like American graffiti did that so well too, where that was a film where you're following these characters. In that case, it was over one night, but you're seeing like how this, their way of life is kind of, they don't even know it's about to be on the way out, and it's going to die out for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still, you know, but there's still a kind of love for that world. It's just, yeah. But there's also that that edge to it, and I, I it, it, he manages to make it very personal and very the. It's very offbeat, and yet it's never like where the the quirk there's a quirk factor that might get overwhelming. I mean, we also had this year uh, the French Dispatch, which I think we both enjoyed to an extent, but it didn't, you know, crack anything close to our list because mm-hmm. I think that's where that hasn't that that's also a film about nostalgia. But I think the quirkiness overwhelmed that movie, and that Anderson did it that way. This <laughs> the Anderson Liquors Pizza though doesn't overwhelm it with it. It's just. This is the world that this is set in and this is uh you know what these characters you know it it doesn't lose the emotional through line, if that's what I mean.
2: Yeah. And this movie also feels utterly authentic. So way back three hours ago, when we were talking <laughs> about Coda, I said like the actors are trying, but I just don't buy it. Yeah. You buy every second of this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, you buy yeah, every second of it and Like I said, it's just so funny. Like, I was howling with laughter. Like, I had one of, like, those giddy movie moments that I just love when, you know, because there's a whole, again, the caper scene where they are supposed to work on John Peter and Barbara Streisand, sorry, Barbara Streisand's (laughs) waterbed, (laughs) and they deliberately fuck it up and run away, and they're in this van, and they suddenly stop because... Right off, coming close, you know, bigger in the frame is John Peters <laughs> storming up a hill, and when I- that was one of my favorite movie-going moments of like the past few years, was just being in the audience as he's coming up, and I'm like,
3: oh no, oh, oh, oh,
1: he's back, <laughs> and then he does it again later. It's so good. Um, g- also great soundtrack. Yes, a Am- And, like, Anderson, too, is just one of the... An an astonishing way of creating movie music moments. And I think that'll be a good segue into our next film. But, like, there's this one part after... um, Like, after this, like, thing goes wrong with the Sean Penn character. Mm. And, you know, Gary kind of saves Alana from it. And they go back to his, like, waterbed place. And they're just kind of sitting side by side in this uh Paul McCartney song uh, let me roll it is playing and how that song plays and how he's just kind of looking at her and you he, you know he kind of lean, is about to lean over maybe to do something and then he stops that tells you also like it it communicates so much about like longing that Gary has for her but mm-hmm. like also how he's actually like the one good guy in this world, and yeah. maybe Alana doesn't. You know, if maybe if she knows it, she hasn't fully processed it yet. Mm-hmm. And I love when movies can do that—that that they can bring you into what a character is feeling, and the song is kind of commenting on it, but creating a mood. And you know, it's uh, movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, liquor's pizza, fucking great. And now. We end on uh, West Side Story.
2: Your number one, my number nine.
1: Yeah, I actually just saw this again uh, today uh, before we recorded this, and I, uh... <sighs> man, I, you know, you talk about like, you know, almost about to you know, to cry when talking about something. I mean. There's there are a few points in this film that I've now seen a few times and it, it I don't know what it is. It's like the way that maybe some of it is because of my own nostalgia, because, uh, you know, when I growing up, I had West Side Story playing a lot. When my mom would drive uh, me and my brother to, uh, to maybe work with her or to go wherever and part was because my brother was also Tony in West Side Story. Probably a couple of times at least um, you know and so a lot of that music is in my just in my DNA but the how he just his control of this medium is uh, you know just staggering in, in particular in this film. He just you know his, the way that he will draw you in so masterfully into a setting, And it's through the characters and he's not ever losing sight of storytelling and weaving stories, you know, together into one whole. Like, you know, and I think what inspired this rewatch is like because there's this there's the scene where um, there's a big gym dance. Like that's kind of where that's where Tony Maria see each other for the first time. How he brings us into it, you know, the sharks come in and they're walking in this little hallway and they go through this door and you see everyone dancing and the shot goes on for like a couple of minutes and it's like such magic because you're following along with what these characters are doing. Another little character, the character anybody is there at the dance and they're trying to do a dance and they're getting knocked around and then they cut you know you're seeing the the jets and the sharks oh so good and then like Tony and Maria see each other from across the way and they're slowly walking towards each other and not quite like in Worst Person in the World but you know in its own way like the world just kind of stops and they go behind the bleachers and have this like little dance to the 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 Leonard Malton's not Leonard Malton the the Leonard Bernstein's score. And my heart just like fills with like all these mixed emotions, like, because, you know, like watching it, like this couple is going to be doomed, but they're just so incredibly attached with each other already. And, you know, the, God, I could talk like for hours about this film, but, uh, I, I'm almost curious to hear like your thoughts because you had no exposure to West Side Story before this movie.
2: Yeah, on, unlike you, I had no particular attachment to this subject to this source material. I've never seen the original movie. I never read the play. I we, mean, I
1: haven't, I haven't read the play either.
2: We saw a mediocre Broadway version of it about ten years ago, which I had like no memory of. Mm. I had some familiarity with some of the songs through, like, cultural osmosis, but I'm going into this movie, I basically had as little connection to West Side Story as a non-comatose person can have. (laughs) Because obviously, like, this story is deep in our cultural DNA. You can't, but I had no nostalgic attachment to it. I'd never seen the movie. I couldn't name all the songs. When I sat down what really struck me from the start was the insane charisma of almost every actor in this yes. movie. Yes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's it that struck me too. Like the casting of this movie from top to bottom is uh, really ex- just sensational and um and it's it's funny because we, we've taught we talked after we saw the movie together mm-hmm. how you know I, I know that you're like Ansel Elgort as as Tony is maybe not the most is not the strongest part of the film. And my take watching it this time is I actually think he is like really terrific in the film. The problem is just everyone else around him is so much better.
2: Yeah, basically the reason this is my number nine and not like higher on my list is I think Ansel Elgort's singing is really great. Like I think as a singer, he holds his own with everyone else. I think he gets a little outshined in the acting by pretty much everyone.
1: Um uh, see, I see, i I under you know what it is when he's acting opposite, like Rita Moreno or, um, Mike, uh, Mike Feist. Mike Feist. Thank you. Mike Feist. Yeah. But I actually think he's actually, he's totally fine with Rachel Zegler. It might be because she's so new to movies that maybe like, she's, you know, like, and she's so like beautiful and like great in the film too. But, um, I think what made it work for me more this, even as mm-hmm. as I'm watching it more this time, I think it's just he's even though he's older than her. I know logically, mm-hmm. like he's an older actor than Rachel Zegler. The two of them are just so like fresh baby faced, like puppy dogs.
2: Yeah, he doesn't look it. Like he looks like her contemporary. And
1: I I'm fine with that. Like because I think it fits the aesthetic of like a lot of the actors in the film, like even the ones who are supposed to be like the tough people, like, you know, um, like Mike Feist as uh riff and, uh, um, and I'm blanking on his name. Now the guy who was Bernardo. Um, and of course, uh, uh Oh God, it sounds so terrible. Adriana
2: DeBose, the um, one. and
1: Adriana DeBose as, uh, yeah, as, as Anita, they're all like, they all look so young and they're so like, they look so, like, fresh-faced and all this. Like, none of them, like, they, they. it's like they don't know what's coming to them.
2: What One of the things I really responded to about this movie is I feel like this movie is kind of old-fashioned in the sense that it's really just, a lot of it's just built on star power. Yeah, Just the throbbing charisma of all these, like, Beautiful, talented, like incandescent stars.
1: Yes. Yeah. They're they're so beautiful and there's like an innocence to it. I feel like even though it's, I know it's a remake of the 1961 film that was uh. itself a Broadway musical. It occurs to me, it, he, Spielberg though, as much as I know he loves West Side Story and he wanted to make, you know, this, his version of West Side Story. He managed to also I think make the most pure version of Romeo and Juliet cuz that's itself like a story of this like these innocent people caught up in like this violent world and they can't do anything to stop it but you want but you know that there's like a purity to what like they're going through and it's like you know cuz the I don't know it I'm trying to give some kind of logic to why Cause I was sitting again in the theater, and as soon as Maria starts singing, like "Only You" and everything I do forever, and there's nothing for me but Maria, like I'm, I'm just not only was am I crying thinking about it right now, like I, I was tearing up looking at the lyrics to the song again for tonight, cause you're just like, there, you totally buy it on this like level that is yet is you know it's what cinema does you know uh, <laughs> you know
2: <laughs> and I, I'm sure you've read and I've read a lot of articles about how stars aren't what they used to be and yeah. stars don't open movies anymore IP opens movies actors don't open movies like IP yeah. opens well, movies well
1: I think West Side Story is you know it's an IP
2: but I feel like you need like I was just so happy to be in the hands of um, a really clever script, fantastically staged dance numbers and incredibly like impassioned acting. So when I say yeah. Elgort, Elgort is not bad, but the problem is everyone else around him is a supernova.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're they're so firing on like you know the, that that group of Feist and Bernardo and Anita and you know Rita Moreno also as uh you know her character yeah yeah they they are like f- like monuments you know and you know and like he's like a little like statue you buy in a store but <laughs> what like uh, but he's such a charming statue and I I don't know. I, I think the more I feel like the more times I'm going to watch this movie, he's going to grow on me. Because well, like even he like his number where he, you know, uh, sings Maria. I know you said, you know, singing voice and all that. But they're also like, I really love his little like he has this scene with Rita Moreno where he's, um you know, he wants to write out the words to say to Maria in Spanish, uh, you know, to say like, you know, you're. You know, I'll, I'll love you forever, you know, basically, you know, and it he's just like you could feel that he's this guy who has really fucked up in his life. But he's just, you know, trying to hold on to some kind of semblance of being like a decent person and the world around him is just so like pulling into like the indecency and like violence that is just, you know, corrupts everything.
2: I also wish they had cut literally one line of dialogue in the movie that tells us we're supposed to believe most of the movies taken place that's, over 24 that's,
1: hours. That's not the only line that tells you that. Like it's pretty clear that they're going to, that this takes place over 48 hours. It
2: wasn't clear to me. I thought it took place over like several weeks when I was watching it. Do
1: you, when did you miss that though? Cause like, when the sharks and the jets have their like powwow in the bathroom, it's pretty clear this is going to be like the next night.
2: Because it's incredibly stupid that the entire thing takes place over. It a doesn't day and matter
1: out. that it takes place in that <laughs> amount of time. Like it's like the whole story is like her. It's like sliding down like this hill of tragedy.
2: I was saying to you yesterday before we went to see the movie Cyrano that the older I get, the sappier I get as a film goer. And the older I get, the more I respond to well executed, like big emotional plays. Like when I was a youngster, like when I was a teenager, I don't think I would have really liked this movie. I would have found its emotional power almost kind of like repellent. Because I wasn't ready for emotions this big Mm -hmm. when I was young. Yeah. But the older I get, the more I respect a director and a writer who are just big saps and realize that, like, love is what makes the world go round. Yeah. Love is all you need.
1: Yeah, that's a great... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they... Are so Kushner and Spielberg are so invested in this world that they've created, which is both, you know, it's it's a it's it's incredibly hyper realistic, and yet it's dealing with things that are extremely real for so many people out there. You know, having it, you know, racism, Mm -hmm. classism, you know, gentrification, you know, having an actual place that you call your home, having some semblance of like, this is what I'm doing with my life. It manages to have a lot to say, like on a political level, it's an extremely political film yeah. while still also, you know, being like, just play it cool boy. <laughs> really cool. Like it's, it's like high entertainment. And I also, again, I come from it from having seen the original, you know, 61 film and that, film is uh you know it still has a place in my heart too but now like i could see this new one taking the place of it just as like it 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 has you know the, the visual grandeur of it is so you know spellbinding
2: well you sh- you were showing me some of the 61 movie on youtube and i was like This is too primitive to me now that I've seen, like, the Spielberg version. I can't roll with
1: this. (laughs) And, like, maybe
2: I'll watch it someday when I have a little more distance from the Spielberg movie. But the state, like...
1: Yeah, I still haven't rewatched the 61 film since this new one. I think maybe that... You're right. It's still a little too close.
2: Because another thing I really loved about this movie was that it's not it's not ashamed of being a big theatrical musical
1: no no uh, not yeah absolutely not and you know and there have been a couple of films this year that that weren't ashamed either right. i mean in the heights um the one you hadn't seen yet tick tick boom um but yeah it, it's uh yeah it, it's not only not ashamed of it it's completely it's all in. It's cashed in all of its chips to, you know, show what it means. You know that that you should be seeing full dance. You should be seeing all these full colors. You should be seeing like, you know, characters like kind of, you know, you know, sl- semi com you know comically looking at another character. You know, like and. Creating, like, little story beats, even in, like, these musical numbers that are just so, like... Uh, and, yeah, and I, I cried multiple times watching this, uh, you know, every time I've seen it. I think... And part of it might be the music, but I think it's just like how you said, how they're such... They're not afraid to be saps, and they want the audience to really engage with that, too.
2: Yeah, the older I get, the more I respond... To movies that are super, like, earnest, sincere, hard on your sleeve, not afraid to say that, like, normal people have really big emotions.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe that's a sign of, like, when you mature, you know, maybe when you're younger, you think, oh, I'm too cool to, yeah. you know, have, like, big emotions. Um,
2: Which is funny, because I was also a bratty little drama queen in some respects as a youth. But I was kind of <laughs> repelled from too much like emotionalism in my art. Yeah. Um
1: that, that I think I, I, I totally get that too. I don't think it was till I was in my twenties and yeah. like, you know, n- another conversation another time, like Umberto D was probably a turning point with that. But
2: Well no, I could emotionally engage with Buffy. That was about it. Like Got high you. level emotional engagement with Buffy, and basically nothing else.
1: Yeah, in my teens. Well, um, which also had musical a thing. <laughs> so yeah, I want to just again the. the uh, it, to me, I don't know. I watching it again t- today. I just thought to myself, I this represents like what I go to the movies for it's it's everything in that Nicole Kidman uh (laughs) preview (laughs) you know somehow heartbreak feels good in a place like this (laughs) you know it's like that you know stories are perfect and powerful you're right Nicole you go girl (laughs) if only your story this season had been perfect and powerful (laughs) but that's another discussion so West Side Story guys go see it if you haven't seen it yet Check it out when it airs on HBO Max and Disney. Um, you know, again, there were a lot of other films I wish I could have gotten to. I mean, you know, there were a lot of things like uh, you know, Barb and Star and Summer of Soul, Velvet Underground, you know, things that were on my Mitchell machines. You know, these honorable mention movies they are also great, but we want to hear from you if you had some films that we didn't talk about or films that we. Maybe rank too low on our list, please let us know. Wages of cinema at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook and uh the Instagramables. Uh I, we don't have a TikTok yet. I don't know how what what I would put on there yet, but maybe I'll TikTok uh we'll do a wages of TikTok one of these days. Um but uh yeah, this was uh this was fun. So, thank you for listening, everyone. And next time we come back, we'll probably be talking about uh, a new 2022 movie. Um, Maybe one hint, spoiler, Corey will not go see ever. And I may dare to go see. Uh, That's just a little tease right there. Um, So, until next time, I'm Jack.
2: Trash Panda Corey.
1: And the Wages of Cinema is... When you're a jet, Hugs. you're a jet. All the way from your first cigarette Hugs. to your last dying day. Hugs! All right, good night.
3: Just a world is a stone.